Welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please welcome your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well, because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatments, so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. On today's show, I'm featuring Dr. Corey Schuler. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Dr. Schuler is the Director of Clinical Affairs for Integrative Therapeutics. He is a certified nutrition specialist, licensed nutritionist, board, board certified in clinical nutrition, chiropractic physician, and fellow of the American Association of Integrative Medicine. He also has earned degrees in nursing and phytotherapeutics. He has a private integrative medicine practice in Hudson, Wisconsin. Dr. Schuler, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to it. You're in Wisconsin. Maybe I should say, yeah, hey, there. You could. <laughs> yeah, hey, there. <laughs> oh, I'm originally from Chicago. Gotcha. Yep. Oh, I'm so happy to meet you, and I, I wanted to have you on the show today to kind of talk about um, the elemental diet and a little bit about SIBO and all that kind of good stuff. So as we get started, I think some of our listeners probably have never heard of SIBO. So can can we kind of like start with the basics of what is SIBO? How do yeah. people get SIBO? How do you know if you have SIBO? What are the symptoms? Like start with one of those, some of those basic things and then we'll transition into the elemental diet. Your listeners are not alone. I've been lecturing now on uh, SIBO and elemental diet for about a year, and uh, I will speak to physicians, gastroenterologists, um, uh, most naturopathic doctors are real familiar with elemental diet or SIBO or, or the use of that, but um, and it's not everyone knows about it, so I'm glad you kind of started with the basics. So when I talk about SIBO, uh, and I'm just going to keep calling it SIBO. So here, SIBO, SIBO, SIBO all the time. Um, I talk about, like, think about your digestive system, both the small intestine and the large intestine. And the large intestine is where a lot of the fermentation can happen. It's where there's a lot of uh, microflora, a lot of things going on. And the small intestine um, is where most of the absorption happens. That's a simplified version, but it's good enough for now. So to illustrate this point, I ask people to take like a, think of a balloon, right? Like a little blow up balloon, like a water balloon without the water in it and uh, kind of wrap your hand around it. And so there's like two little bubbles, right? You're kind of squeezing that balloon and there's a bubble on top and a bubble on the bottom. Well, the way it's supposed to be is that bubble on the bottom, the large intestine is supposed to be bigger. That's kind of where the air goes. It's kind of made for fermentation and um, the small intestine is going to be smaller and diameter, so it's not as good for that, and it's not really designed for all that. Um, but in SIBO, imagine kind of squeezing that balloon just a little bit differently, so the, the balloon on the bottom is small, and the, the bubble on top is real big. And that's what happens with these people. 
people will eat what we would consider normal foods and they blow up like a balloon. Um, I had a patient who was 110 pounds and she looked and she looked very slender and she was she was like a bikini model and when she ate certain foods she looked like she was five months pregnant. Like it just stuck way out. This gas and bloating was just excessive and uh, that's a pretty good illustration of what SIBO can be. I love that illustration and like you I've had many patients come in and they're most they're most concerned about the aesthetic because they as a female they don't want to look pregnant right and uh but in guys you can have that level of bloating too i've had men come in as like it's like i'm pregnant except i'm not (laughs) right okay so tell us a little bit more about SIBO Sure. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of interest that's been poured into this. So um, SIBO is sort of categorized as one one version or maybe even a contributing factor or maybe the causative factor in irritable bowel syndrome. So a lot of people have commented and said, I have irritable bowel syndrome or I've been diagnosed with it. Um, and so this is categorized sort of in the same area, whether it's the cause or the result or, you know, we, we haven't figured everything out. There's some good theories about which came first, uh, chicken or egg, but in regards to just think about it kind of as, as sort of the same thing. That's maybe the best way to talk about that. And when I talk about uh, irritable bowel syndrome, now people kind of understand what that means because we've been talking about this much longer. Irritable bowel syndrome is often categorized with that alternating diarrhea, constipation, and sort of uh, hesitancy to eat certain foods, maybe lots of different irritations to foods, and so that uh, that makes a lot of good sense. It, conventionally, treatment for IBS has, has been horrible, <laughs> terrible. I mean, um, Metamucil and some antidepressants has been usually what we've, <laughs> what we've heard, um, and just people haven't been treated very well at all. But up until recently, uh, even conventional medicine has picked up on some of this. Uh, in fact, there is a what we call a, a luminal agent, uh, antibiotic, which means it's an antibiotic that doesn't go systemic, um, uh, rifaximin, also known as a faxin, um, which goes in and it just sort of stays in the gut. It doesn't get absorbed into the bloodstream, and that is uh, FDA-approved for irritable bowel syndrome and the reason that it's approved for irritable bowel syndrome is because it affects SIBO (laughs) so you can see how it's connected together absolutely so again SIBO is too much bacteria in the small intestine creating uh, gas and fermenting foods and creating a lot of chaos actually in the body overall Um, Dr. Schuler, can you uh, just very quickly kind of talk about some of the medications that patients can be taking that can predispose them or contribute to the growth of this bacteria in their small intestine? Yeah, I mean, so virtually all kinds of antibiotics, except for the one I just mentioned, can contribute to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, And that includes antibiotics that are in foods. So I really strongly urge people to get antibiotic-free meats, especially whenever possible. So that's sort of the main... there's other nits and gnats, and we can sort of focus in on other things, um, but you can say highly processed foods will make it worse if you're already predisposed to it. If you already have some bacterial overgrowth or uh, uh, you know colonization in the wrong place and you feed it, these things thrive on sugars, like complex sugars. So um, if you feed it sugar and highly processed foods, typically, you're going to make it a lot worse. And it's interesting because our dietary recommendations 
are kind of different. Now, I, I usually recommend a gluten-free and dairy-free diet for most people who are sick, but not everybody can comply with that or stick with it. But um, you think about just from a blood sugar perspective, everyone, dietitians, conventionally trained uh, practitioners say stay away from white foods like white bread. However, um, because it messes with your blood sugar. However, the in SIBO, that uh, that sugar is actually absorbed very quickly or more quickly than, say, um, whole wheat bread that has kind of the same amount of sugar, but it also has fiber, so it's like a slow-release sugar, and that slow-release sugar is what makes the, uh, the bugs in your gut just party all night, and uh, that is some of the better, some of the worst problems that... Uh, people face. You're actually sort of eating foods that you've been told not to eat, and that seems to be working the best if you're not following strict uh, dietary regime. Okay, so it kind of covered some of the symptoms that patients could have if they have SIBO, so some of the IBS symptoms of gas, bloating, indigestion, constipation, or diarrhea, or both. And uh, with the uh, medication standpoint to like opens the door for the growth of SIBO, could be antibiotics, could be antacid medications, painkillers, especially opiate painkillers from that yep. class, and uh, chronic use of the birth control pill. Okay, so Dr. Schuler, let's kind of talk about some of the different lab markers that might be found that might make you think about, oh, I wonder if this patient has SIBO, because not everybody has those kind of classic gut symptoms. Right. Yeah. I mean, some people are having just mood symptoms. They, they just know that they have this sort of cyclical mood situation that when they eat and they blame it on hyper hypoglycemia or blood sugar problems. Um, so you're right. There's not always a, a classic sign or symptom. And actually, heartburn is one of the signs or symptoms of SIBO that we're now zeroing in on as sort of, oh, wait a second, this could be, there could be pressure from the small intestine sort of pushing up on the uh, pyloric sphincter and sort of causing uh, non-emptying of acids. So heartburn's another good one, but you're right, testing. Um, so there, there are sort of SIBO-specific tests. Um, one is the lactulose breath test. And so lactulose is a, a non-absorbable sugar. And so you, you can take that, uh, it just, you, you take it in lactulose and uh, it's a two or three hour test depending on which lab you do. The three hour test is a little bit better. Um, and then you breathe into this tube and that's the specimen collection. So it's literally the breath that gets sent to the lab and then they analyze it for how much gas you're producing. And typically they're looking for hydrogen, but they can also look for methane. Um, another, and that measures better sort of the, the more distal or the further down uh, small intestine, whereas they can also do a glucose test. And glucose is a, it's a smaller and it is an absorbable sugar. Um, and that is if you drink glucose rapidly, you can't absorb it fast enough. And so what happens is you absorb some of it, of course, but then the rest of it sort of goes to feed the bugs. And by feeding the bugs, they, they party all night and, and then they produce the gas and then they measure the gas in the same way. And they can look, typically that's just hydrogen, but they could look for methane as well there as well. So that's sort of diagnostic criteria or, or assessment criteria, so if, unless SIBO is determined to be a disease. Right now it's called an assessment, but diagnostic for our purposes. There are also non-diagnostic tests that we like to have when treating people with SIBO. Um, so people can look at things like their complete blood count, which is 
commonly drawn or something called the uh, erythrocyte sedimentation rate or sed rate, which measures inflammation. And, of course, the other test for that is C-reactive protein. Sometimes we like to look at thyroid markers. We can look at stool testing for a variety of things, but primarily for fat malabsorption. So there's a marker called elastase 1 that looks for uh, kind of pancreatic insufficiency. That's useful. Um, it's I don't use this personally, but I know that some people have used like a string test or a gastro test where they can literally measure the pH of the stomach to determine that contribution of GERD. Um, and then you can also do sort of intestinal permeability testing, um, which is usually a lactulose mannitol test, related test, food sensitivity testing, including um, kind of more comprehensive celiac testing. And then conventionally, sometimes a, a colonoscopy is done or a, an endoscopy kind of looking for to rule out the, the really ugly things that could be masquerading as SIBO. So let's just say if you've not had a breath test yet, that should probably be the next thing that you should do if you're having some of these symptoms and everything else has been done and the doctors keep telling you like everything's normal. Absolutely. That would be the, the first thing that we do. We And I go just a little step further just because it's sort of the same type of test. And, and that's a fructose malabsorption test. So I, I prepare patients and say, well, we're going to do a breath test. And since we're going to do one breath test, let's do three. Um, of course, if they don't want to, we, we don't. But there's another test called a fructose malabsorption test. And since fructose, fruit sugar, is common not just in fruit but other processed foods, um, I like to determine if they can uh, tolerate that or not. Frankly, it's usually not tolerated very well, and so it's one way I can uh, give them observable evidence or objective evidence to remove those things because it's easy to say, hey, remove all processed foods, but if I have a test here that says you can't tolerate this thing that's common in every processed foods, I have a little bit more leverage and they feel a little bit more, a little more confident about making that behavior change. Yeah, it definitely is more motivating <laughs> yeah. to see it on a piece of paper. I know for me, when I'm not the doctor and I am the patient, I like to see it on a piece of paper as proof to say, yep, I got to make a change there. Yeah, that that's clinical, just how I am. Absolutely. That clinical strategy is actually me projecting because I needed that. I needed that to say, look, you gotta, you're sort of in this field and you're doing, you're doing this kind of work. You better not eat this garbage. And so I needed proof, I guess, to say, this is why. And and I was positive I can't have fructose um, in very high levels, maybe like five grams or so, which is not very much at all. And uh, so that's that's what happened for me. (laughs) Uh, We are birds of a feather in that way. Yes. Okay, so I'm I'm so happy that you brought up the fructose test, because um, nobody really talks about fructose malabsorption. Yeah, it's probably an overlooked um, thing, and it, 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 there's a part of it that's the tests maybe aren't perfect for it, but they're good. At, they're good enough to be able to make a clinical decision. They're maybe not as uh, as rigorous, and they they're not. There's no gold standard test really for the fructose malabsorption test, so that's sort of why it probably doesn't come to the forefront yet. Um, and it's really hard to avoid. Um, so I think, and it doesn't cause like serious problems in you know conventionally conventionally trained like in nursing we're always worried about the thing that's going to kill you and fructose doesn't really kill you i mean maybe over time but not 
not today and not in the next week. So it isn't, doesn't get sort of the enthusiasm that it, it might, um, but I find it to be a very useful test. Okay, so then from one doctor to another, what percentage of patients do you see in your private practice that do have SIBO, so they do have a positive breath test, uh, what percent of them also have fructose malabsorption? So I have a, uh, I have a, a dual practice. I have a, um, a functional medicine approach to headache practice, and I have a metabolic treatment center practice. And that is, uh, so that's just sort of more general family medicine um, practice. And that is, uh, but we run these tests on everybody. So I can tell you even more data than you kind of asked. In headache patients, I find this SIBO to be much, much more prevalent, probably 60%, which is extremely high. I mean, it's so high that I, I have considered publishing this data because it hasn't been, um, it hasn't been shown before. About 60% of headache patients are, are being positive for the, either the lactulose or the glucose breath test. And uh, of those people, um, usually if, they don't, if that's not positive, Fructose isn't positive, um, but of the of the portion that are positive for the breath test, probably about twenty five percent are fructose positive as well. Wow! Now, in the other side of things, on the sort of the, the general practice, about it's more like twenty five percent are positive for the breath test, and uh, and that but that sort of stays the same. That ratio stays the same. About twenty five percent of that twenty five percent are positive for fructose. Wow! I think you should publish that information about the headaches. Yeah, it's it's very interesting, and uh, my business partner and I have we're just like, oh my gosh! But we haven't done the institutional review board and, and gone through all that, so it really is a it's a case study series. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it's not like the heavyweight kind of data research that you'd want in a peer reviewed journal. But I still think it's a of interest, and maybe a researcher will will jump on it and grab it and go. Very interesting, and it, it part of it could be that with headaches, people have taken a lot of painkillers, and then that predisposes them to SIBO, I bet? It could be. And I mean, generally, they uh, people with headaches are uh, have had something in their lifestyle that is uh, not perfect. So mm. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of things happening there. We have the, the, not to get too far off, but, you know, hormone-related headaches certainly are, mm. ha- are contributed with uh, birth control changes, birth control pill changes and things like that. And then we see blood sugar headaches. And so there's a, a blood sugar and SIBO connection clearly because of the types of foods that they're eating um, or not eating. Uh, so yeah, I think there's just a lot of uh, interactions there. Yeah. And I can totally see how like just basic headaches, you have a headache, you take a Tylenol or ibuprofen or whatever, right. uh, and you do that for long enough, and that's going to create SIBO, which creates more inflammation, which contributes to more headaches, which you need more painkillers, and then more SIBO, and it's just a vicious, vicious cycle that happens. Yeah, absolutely. And it's I had a patient yesterday who was getting, like, uh, she had alopecia, and so she was losing her hair, and she was getting hair transplants, and in order to reduce the infection, they gave her doxycycline, a relatively powerful antibiotic we typically use for, like, Lyme disease, and uh, they, uh, she, she's on it, like, indefinitely, like, forever, and she's getting all of these classic symptoms of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and she probably had the alopecia due to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So it's just like perpetuating this monster of a clinical case. 
Okay, so let's transition into treatment. So treatment-wise for SIBO, we have diet changes, we have antibiotics, we have herbs that can be used mm-hmm. as antimicrobials, and then we have the elemental diet. Yeah, those are generally the, the four options, um, and we let people sort of choose your own lane. Um, usually when people come to us, they've tried one or two of the lanes already, so diet, elemental diet, um, herbal approaches or, or antibiotics, they've usually gone down that path a little bit, and if they haven't, we sort of we pick, we pick the lane. Um, diet is easiest because it's the most sustainable. It's uh, the thing that you can do long-term, but it's not the fastest. So I always say diet is best in one regard, but it's the slowest. So, you know, it's kind of like the, it's like the kidneys versus the lungs. Like the kidneys are, are really good and efficient at uh, keeping pH, but they're slow as molasses, whereas the lungs are really fast, but they're really inefficient, similar with, with diet. Um, so sometimes we want to get a jump on this. And so dietary approaches, I can talk, we can talk the whole time about this, but uh, among the SIBO thought leaders, uh, the low FODMAP, which is fermentable type foods, um, those, uh, that's been very popular, although it's gotten some pushback in the, the SIBO community. And so what has been suggested instead is what's called a specific carbohydrate diet, which has been effective for individuals, and uh, it became very, very popular. And then sort of newest kid on the block, in my opinion, and and also uh, Mark Pimental has has sort of his SIBO food guide, and Mark Pimental is a physician at uh, Cedar sinai Hospital in, in Los Angeles, but uh, and he does a lot of research in this area. Um, but newer than that is uh, Norm Robillard's work on the fast-track diet, and Norm's not a clinician at all. He's a, a microbiologist. He went to the University of Massachusetts Amherst and did his postdoc at Boston University, and he decided that he wanted to kind of understand this basically out of his own issues with heartburn. And so he, when he found out uh, that this SIBO connection was, he really put together some uh, kind of a useful way of thinking about it. And he's put together something called a fermentation potential for most foods, a lot of foods, a large catalog of foods anyway. And he just recommends keeping your fermentation potential down under a daily limit and then under a, a meal limit. And so it's sort of like Weight Watchers for uh, for people with gut problems. It's really neat. Yeah, I actually got to interview Dr. Norm Robillard um, a while back. So for the listeners out there, I'll make sure to find that link to his podcast so you can kind of um, get his perspective on his diet for heartburn and reflux GERD and how it relates back to SIBO. So Dr. Schuler, let's kind of transition and talk a little bit more about the elemental diet. Sure, absolutely. So the elemental diet, um, as we've sort of illustrated here, is there is a People have problems with digesting certain foods. And uh, one of the foods that's kind of a problem with SIBO is, is large proteins. So these large proteins, um, or any protein actually, is a large molecule by nature. And it has to be broken down in a variety of ways. So it has to be unwound and, and cut up and, and split into its primary components, which are amino acids. And then those amino acids are easily absorbed. And then the, the liver has a role in kind of putting them back together to reconstitute those proteins as tissue. So, you know, you you eat a, a chicken 
breast sandwich or a chicken breast and it ends up being you know new skin um that's that's not magic that's that's done physiologically so what uh the the problem with those large proteins is that if you have gastrointestinal digestive impairment, um, some of those proteins end up in the bloodstream and sort of cause the immune system to go nuts. And so proteins in and of themselves are relatively allergenic. In fact, the eight major allergens that we pay attention to are all protein in nature. So we want to get rid of that allergenicity of protein out of the diet, and we want to get those carbohydrate um carbohydrates that are feeding the microbes out of the diet. And so an elemental diet is taking these macronutrients and sort of breaking them down into their elemental components. So instead of large sugars, it's just uh, dextrose. Um, Instead of proteins or peptides or polypeptides, it's just free-form amino acids. And even the fats are highly absorbable, medium-chain triglycerides. And so there's a variety of elemental diets that are on the market and uh, this really got started I mentioned uh, Dr. Pimental before but he really uh, started launching this idea that um, maybe there's something to this in in like 2000 so we're almost talking nearly 20 years ago but he did a study where he took um, an elemental diet product and gave it to people with a positive lactulose test and he was able to normalize most of them in two weeks and almost all of them within three weeks. And so the theory was is that if you just don't feed these bugs, they sort of go into hibernation state and then they don't cause the bloating and problems. And then you sort of have time to work on the other contributing factors. So that's what he did there. Um, Is there anything else that you want to say about the elemental diet? Yeah, it tastes like terribleness. (laughs) I mean, yeah, (laughs) I, I, I can't... Because I'm assuming this is sort of a family show, so I can't even repeat what my patients have said about this awful, vile, terrible um, elemental diet um, product that they were using in the research. And so um, there have been improvements, um, and most recently a very, very powerful improvement uh, to the palatability and which improves compliance to this test. So I would, I would prescribe elemental diet for two weeks, which is what the research typically suggests, and I would have patients take it for one, three, five days, and they just have to quit because it just tastes so, so bad. Yeah, I've only had a couple of patients actually do the elemental diet because once I describe it to them, most people just say, no, I'm not doing that. Yep. <laughs> uh, but uh, some patients, they're like, we try everything for their SIBO and nothing works and we're just stuck. And it's like, okay, we got now, like we really have to revisit that elemental diet. And they say, okay, I'll try it. And I found that they actually get really great results. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is sort of fantastic results. Um, the challenge with it is that you probably can't do it forever. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, no, you it's, can't. it's not food you chew. And so the problem is, is that uh, you have to eventually get back on it. There was a study that looked at using the elemental diet in patients with rheumatoid arthritis, which is unrelated, but related. Um, and they got a lot better. But then when they introduced, they gave them the foods back that they were having before, you know, they got sick again. Um, well, that's a research approach to things. A clinician's approach to things are, well, you were better on the elemental diet. You're not better on the foods that you're eating before. So you can't eat the foods you're eating before. So let's have to figure out what foods that you can tolerate better. Um, and so there's some neat clinical approaches on how to figure that one out. 
Dr. Schuler, we're starting to run low on time. How can our listeners find out more about you? The best way to find me is I'm at metabolictreatmentcenter.com. That's the clinic site. Um, but I also like to play around on Facebook, so you can search me out on it's Corey Schuler on Facebook. And the uh, the company that I work for, Integrative Therapeutics, is just integrativepro.com. Now that's a direct to healthcare professional only uh, website in the U.S. So um, just know that, but that's where I spend my time. Dr. Schuler, I'm going to put you on the spot here. So you could say yes or you can say no. Um, if you say no, I'll just edit it all out. I would like <laughs> to invite you back for another in- interview where we can kind of focus on the headache component. I think that would be really great because there's many different aspects to headache and you just kind of breezed over a few of them, the SIBO, the blood sugar, the hormones. Yeah, I would love to talk about headaches. Um, I, I like talking about it. That's why I do it. Okay. Wonderful. Okay, so uh, Dr. Schuler, thank you so much for being my special guest today. This has just been an awesome interview. Thanks for having me. I, uh, I really appreciate it and letting me uh, talk about the stuff that I love. All right, that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Corey Schuler. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next week for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carey is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carey is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please tell your friends about the Functional Medicine Radio Show, and we'll see you next week with more from Dr. Carey.